Well, it's really great to be here. Um, I, I'm very excited about what we're going to be talking about today, and I, um, but I also want you to know I approach it with a lot of fear and trepidation, all right? So we're going to be looking at a very familiar verse um, in the context of a passage. And when you do that, it's always difficult because um, a verse like this is, is, is so well known that, in fact, we don't even have to recite the verse to each other. We just give the reference of the verse, and we all know what we mean. And the verse I'm speaking about is Romans 8:28. And so, if you know you've ever been with somebody and they're going through a difficult time, and you know you're a believer, you go, "Yeah, well, it's going to be okay," because you know Romans 8:28. You know, and, and so that and that's all we've got to say. And so, I want to say a couple of things. Um, there are verses, certain verses, that as believers, and maybe believers in the 20th and 21st century, you know, um, we have our go-to verses. We have those verses that if you left your Bible here on a Sunday morning, um, you know, and I went and we, we were snooping through it, these would be the ones underlined or highlighted in your Bible, you know. Um, and, and, and that's great. I mean, there's, there's such a great place and, and, and um, source of comfort for us. And, I mean, we put them on bumper stickers. But, but I would say this morning, as, as fine as that is, there is something better to be done. And that is to see these verses in their context. So to see these verses in the rich and meaningful and deep contexts in which they live. And then to come back to them as believers and as families and marriages and small groups and cling to them during times of life on planet earth. And so that's what I want to do this morning. And last week, Mark Kirkendall was here and we started this series on the attributes of God. And it's like I told White House, which, we sent Mark out here so you guys would know what good preaching was. And um, I went over to White House so they could, you know, identify with what you guys have to endure every week. So, um, but if you didn't listen to Mark, get on. It was really good. And he, he opened us up with the attributes of God. And so when we talk about attributes, we, we're talking about things like God's holiness and his love and his power and his knowledge and so, so, when you speak of this, you're speaking of who God is when you talk about His attributes. And there are things in attributes, that, so there are things um, called communicable attributes that like we share with God. So, God is love. Well, we also know what love is. The reason we know what love is is because God's love. We know what anger is. And, and so we, we, we have and can share in much of the experience of the attributes of God, but not to the degree. There are also what's called incommunicable attributes, which are attributes only God has. 
But when we talk about the attributes of God, the one thing we would want to say is that the triune God, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share all the attributes. They, you know, it's, it's Trinitarian. There's three persons and one God of the same essence. And so whatever attribute can be said about any person of the Trinity, it is said about all of the Trinity. And at the same time, we would also say that God, unlike us, is always these attributes to the fullest, different than us. So we may be experiencing or or know wrath or anger, and yet we know in our lives when we do, it diminishes our ability to love. But with God, there is no contradiction and no diminishing He is a God of infinite wrath and infinite mercy and infinite love and infinite grace. And none of those diminish the other because he's perfect. And so this morning, the attribute that I want us to consider together from the end of Romans chapter 8, and we could actually pick several things um, to consider from this, but the one I want to focus in on is the attribute of God's sovereignty. And when we talk about sovereignty, here's what we're talking about. We are talking about that God has both the power, infinite, unlimited power, and full and complete authority, both power and authority. You you can see examples of people that have power but no authority or people that have authority and no power. When we speak about the sovereignty of God, we are speaking about His infinite power and His infinite authority to rule over all things. And when the Bible speaks of God's sovereignty his power and his authority, it typically is one of these three areas that it is affirming, the rule of God, the rule of God over all creation. In fact, the Bible opens up with the sovereignty of God. And in fact, thinking trinitarily, you go to Colossians and you find that Christ holds all things together. And so that God is sovereignly, intimately involved in His rule over all creation. The second place that you find God's sovereignty spoken about is in the rule over human history. That means all the ordinary things in our life day to day, all the way up to the rise and the fall of nations and empires and eras that God sovereignly rules over all of history. Well, the third um, emphasis of the Bible with regard to God's sovereignty is God's sovereignty in salvation or God's sovereignty in redemption. 
And what the Bible says, and then what we'll see this morning, is that it is sovereignly ruled by God, which means it is a work of God alone, according to His eternal purposes. And that means God takes the initiative. It means that God applies the power, the enabling power, that both in the provision and in the empowering, God is sovereign over salvation. All right, that's the introduction. Now, I want to argue for three things this morning. I want to show you that Paul begins this discussion um, speaking about God being sovereign over suffering, and then he's going to talk about God being sovereign in salvation, and then end with God being sovereign in sustaining us in his love. And it's important that we see how this flows together. So, what happens is in Romans chapter 8, this is how it opens up. It actually begins back in Romans 7. It actually begins in Romans chapter 1. But anyways, Romans, the end of Romans 7 is, is probably familiar if you've been around the church. It's where Paul says, you know, he's struggling, he's having this internal struggle, and he says, I do the things I don't want to do. And in myself, I find that I'm, I'm not doing the things I do want to do. And then he says, what a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Now, then he opens up in Romans chapter 8, or what we've defined as Romans chapter 8, and he begins to answer that question, who can save me? And in Romans 8, 1, he says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends Romans by saying, there is nothing that separates us from his love in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. And then everything in between that is... is um, is governed by or, or, or is explaining what he means. We said, no, no condemnation, and there's no separating you from his love. And so, in the middle of, of eight, he then begins to explore this idea of suffering. And in, in verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter eight, verse 18, he says this. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That listen, suffering comes and it's difficult and yet as I think about it, no amount of suffering now will compare to the glory that will be revealed then. And what's amazing is, is what Paul always does, you can count on it when he begins to bring up suffering and he does in almost every one of his letters, and he never gives us a way out of suffering. Do you know this? You read it, and he never gives us a way out of suffering. You know what he does? He gives us hope in the midst of suffering. I'm telling you, everything in us wants to go, Paul, how about the way out, buddy? But he doesn't do it. And I'm going to show you why he doesn't do that. 
He goes on, there's suffering. In fact, the whole world is suffering because of the sin that mankind brought into creation. In fact, the whole creation groans and it waits and longs for the redemption, the salvation of men and women because then all things will be made new. And he ends that section, that little conversation about suffering, this way in Romans 8, 28. He says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, when you see things like his purpose, you're alerted to, okay, this is in the context of sovereignty, of God's being all-powerful and having all authority. And when he says, listen, all things together for good, when he speaks that way, he's not talking about sort of external good or creature comfort good or intrinsic Good. What he's speaking about is internal good, or, or maybe let's say it this way, eternal good. And he's going to define what that good is in the next verse by saying that good that God is working all things together for, you know what it is? It is that you, it is you being conformed into the likeness of the Son. That's the good. And we will specifically see our likeness revealed fully when we are glorified. When the Bible speaks about image, this image language, it has two things to draw upon in the first century. One of those things is um, the, the images that would be embossed on coins. So, you know, it would stick, it, and the, the image on the coin gave the coin its value. So, if we gave you all here, you know, a $1 million coin, and that's what we told you it was worth, but it had my face on it, you couldn't buy anything. All right? It is the image on the coin that gives it the value. That's why, you know, we have presidents. You've got a George Washington, you know, or, or better yet, a Benjamin Franklin. You know, that's what gives it the value. The other idea that the Bible, biblical writers draw upon when they use image is the idea of your reflection. Now, the, to see your reflection in the first century, you had to find still water to see your reflection image. Anybody ever been to the Alamo? It's um, one of my favorite places to go. In fact, I always, if we're anywhere near it, I always drag my kids through it um, because I share a significant date with the Alamo. The day the Alamo fell and my birthday are the same day. Now, different years, but it, um, it's the same day. And so, I, you know, I feel this special draw to the Alamo just tragic, I guess. And I, so every time we're close, I take my kids. And, and there's so much fascinating history at the Alamo. You can spend a week there and not really get it all in. But as you come into the entrance, there's a portrait that sits there at the entrance. And if you've never read the inscription, the next time you go to the Alamo, go and read all the inscriptions around. You'll be fascinated. But this one is a 
portrait, and underneath the portrait it says this, um, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham. And he's deceased. But he greatly resembles his uncle. And so the family has placed it here so that people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. So you can draw that line. It's no portrait of Jesus that exists. But as God works all things together for good, that good of being transformed into his image, we begin to reflect the image of the Son. So that we can know what the one who died for our sins and set us free looked like. And that will be most clearly seen when we're glorified. And one writer said it this way, the primary reason for salvation was not to take us somewhere. It was to make us like someone. And so it gives us this encompassing, like two pictures of God's love. You're fully embraced as you are by God. I mean, you're unconditionally loved. And he's going to go on and say you're chosen by him. And that never changes no matter what. And at the same time, you're always in the process of being transformed into his image. And the all things brings with it the reality of things like suffering and hardship and grief and even the consequences of our own sin. And that God in His power and His authority redeems all things to that good. Now, here's the challenge, two challenges of all things, all right? And then I'm going to move on and we're going to get into it, really into it. But here's the two challenges of all things. You ready? One of those is we believe or we Desperately want to believe. Even though we know it's not true. We believe that comfort is the more fertile ground to cultivate Christ-likeness. That when my, li- when my life is comfortable, you know, this is what we want to believe. That when my life's comfortable, then I would sit in the midst of my great comfort and say, oh yeah, man, this is really forging me into the likeness of Christ. And yet we know that that's not true. Comfort for a believer. It, it produces in us all kinds of things. Contempt, apathy. Here's what we know that the likeness of Christ is forged in the most difficult times of our life. When we are stripped of everything else and we are absolutely, totally, desperately dependent 
upon the power and the authority and the presence of God. Here's the second thing. We believe, or we want to believe, favorable circumstances, like a good house or a good job or financial security or you know, having obedient children or being healthy as we, as we age, that we believe. I mean, listen, it's, a, it's part of our fallenness. It's part of us being human beings. We believe all that stuff. That would be more satisfying than the indwelt presence of and likeness in Christ. I mean, if we were given the choice when we woke up today, with all the things we would know at the beginning of our day, it's okay, you want to choose. You want to choose favorable circumstances today? Or do you want to choose experiencing the indwelling and transforming presence of Jesus? Most of us would be like, you know, today... Today, I think I'll just choose favorable circumstances because it seems much easier. But here's what we know. Listen, every one of us, we all have these experiences in life because this is what we really know is true. That we have experiences in life that we've walked through. If you're a believer, and you think, you know what? I would never, I would never choose that again. but I wouldn't trade that for anything because I'm different because of it. We would never choose it. But man, if we've been privileged enough to walk through some of those old things, we would never trade it. So Paul goes from here Know the flow. There's no condemnation. Nothing can separate you from his love. He deals with the very difficult thing of suffering and moves from the sovereignty of God in all his authority and all his power in suffering to salvation. And look at what he says, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the good we were talking about. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the sovereignty of God from salvation or from eternity past. Sovereignty of God and salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Now, these are really difficult things to discuss. It's called the, um, the golden chain. And in every link of the chain is something that God does something that God secures, and He does it alone. And there are all these words, you know what I mean? So, I know, they make us, you know, foreknowledge and 
predestined. And then some of you, some of you go, whoa, and then election. You think of that. And then being conformed. And then, and then being called. And all of these things. And it creates in us a, a tension. And we all feel the tension. Well, so what is it? Is it, is it the sovereignty of God or or is it the responsibility of man? I mean, which one of these things is it? And I would offer you this morning that I think there are only two kinds of people that fully understand the depth of these truths. One of those is a person that's dead. All right? They see it all now. They, it's crystal clear. The other are people that are delusional. You know? They seem to have a handle on it, I guess. It is not meant to be this puzzle to our mind. It is meant to be this pillow to our soul. It would be like this. It would be like, you know, you ever take an English class and you're studying poetry and you take the, the poem and, you, and you, you know, you, you're pulling it all apart and you're saying, okay, well, here's how the rhythm works and here's how the couplets are and these are the, it rhymes or it doesn't rhyme and then you pull it out and, you know, you're talking about the meter and the stanza, you know, all these things, you know, and, and it would be like the, the writer of the poem broke into your class and said, stop, this is not why I wrote the poem. I wrote the poem to affect you deeply in your soul, not to get lost with a puzzle for your mind. And that's the way these truths are. When we talk about these tensions, we're talking about an antinomy. That's the word for it. Where two truths are presented and they're both true, and yet seemingly, from a certain perspective, they seem contradictory. They are both presented, they are both true, and yet from the perspective you hold viewing the truths, they seem to you to be contradictory. It's an antinomy. We, we feel the tension. And I just want you to know, the biblical writers, they are so comfortable with this tension. The biblical writers under the Holy Spirit, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write these truths. Write the truths of God's sovereignty. That you're elected before the foundations of time. And, like Acts 17 says, God commands all people everywhere to Repent. They are both true. And the biblical writers never feel the obligation to relieve the tension for us. And so what happens is we, we're the ones that want to relieve the tension. We're the ones that can't live with it, you know. And we have these whole camps dedicated to each side of the truths, you know. Let's talk about a couple of them. One, foreknowledge. In verse 29, he foreknew you. Now, let me tell you what foreknowledge is and what it isn't. 
Foreknowledge is not that God looked down the corridor of time and saw whether you would accept or reject Jesus and then predestined you on the basis of your choice. And the reason I know that that is not what foreknowledge is is because the Bible presents a God who does not discover anything. He knows everything. In fact, he doesn't discover anything. He is a God presented who decrees his will. And it happens. And if we define foreknowledge in a way that says, okay, well, God looked down the corridors of time and discovered about us which one we would choose and then predestined us back on that, that is, an, that is not the picture, that is not the God presented in the Bible. The God presented in the Bible doesn't discover anything. He decrees it. And this foreknowledge is this intimate knowing, this covenant knowing. He says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Those he foreknew, he predestined. To be predestined means that um, you are um, marked out beforehand. To predestine something is to set the course for it. To, it, it. Predestination is always unconditional. It's always initiated by God. And it speaks to the divine purposes of God as it relates to all created things. Listen, if we don't have a high view of God's sovereignty... If you don't have a high view of God's sovereignty, you're in, you really, you're in danger of great bitterness in your life. You're in danger of not knowing comfort, of, of not being able to rest. And I mean rest like, like Joseph rests in the sovereignty of God before his brothers. When he says, as for you, in all your human responsibility, you meant this for evil against me. But God, in his sovereignty, meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He meant it for good. What Joseph didn't know is that that good was conforming him into the likeness of Christ to come who would find himself crucified by the wicked evil intentions of man, even though they were prophesied centuries and millennia before. But that good God meant it for so many of us would be saved. There's this debate that goes on. A group of theologians, they have a falling out over these things, you know, um, sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And so they split, they divide it up. You know, they said, we can't live with each other any longer. They became two groups of theologians. Well, there was this one guy, and he's left in the middle, and he didn't know, I mean, didn't know which he was. He was like a Baptist or something. So he, um, 
That's a joke. It's like 80% a joke. All right, so, but he didn't know. So he went over to the predestined group and he said, don't want to join your group. And they said, well, okay, how'd you get here? He said, well, I looked at the two groups and I chose your group. He said, you chose our group? No. You know, and they kick him out. They said, you can't come here. That's not, that's the exact opposite of what we believe. So you have to go, they said, you have to go to the other group. So he does. He sheepishly walks across over there and he goes to them and he comes and says, I want to join your group. And they said, well, okay, well, we're the free rule group. How'd you get here? He said, well, I, I didn't choose this. I was sent here by them. Said, she was sent by <laughs> So he went and started his own church, all right? <laughs> here's, here's what it means. It means we love him because he first loved us. Those he foreknew, he predestined. He goes on, those he pre- whom he predestined, he also called. You notice at the beginning, that all those who are foreknown make it all the way to glorify. He didn't lose anybody. doesn't lose anybody. Those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he called. This calling, sometimes called the prevenient grace of God, the previous grace of God, or the effectual call of God, where God comes before us and makes the way, makes it able, grants us faith, opens our blinded eyes so that we can see and believe so that what God has decreed from eternity past we experience in a moment in time in history and that is salvation this isn't salvation this is salvation but all he foreknew will be glorified It is foreknowledge and predestination, those then they will be called. What it is, is the love of God wooing us. It's the will of God drawing us. It's the desire of God pursuing us. It's the gift of God freeing us. It's the activity of God empowering us. And C.S. Lewis sums it all up in the Chronicles of Narnia as Aslan, the Christ figure, saying to the children, listen, You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Whatever else may be said, one thing is clear. The entire initiative of salvation lies with God. What before time began, he foreknew and predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And then in history, he calls us so that we would be justified. That is, we would stand right before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus and then be glorified. Some say, well, he missed sanctification. Well, he didn't miss it. It's glorification is sanctification fulfilled.
sometimes I'll be studying something and I've been looking at a passage and looking at it for, you know, a week or two weeks or years in this case. And you come across somebody that writes something and you go, they got it. Wow. John Dunn writes this about this. This is what Paul is saying is that I shall be so like God as that the devil himself shall not know me from God. And as far as finding any place to fashion a, tem- or to fasten a temptation upon me, well, there'll be no more place to fasten a temptation upon me than there is upon God. And he will have no more hope of causing me to fall from that kingdom than he would to drive God out of his own kingdom. You hear what he's saying? I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ and my glorification to the degree that when Satan looks upon me, he won't be able to distinguish me from the Son. Beautiful thought. That's right. Here's where it becomes practical. And then I'm going to close suffering, God of, sovereignty of God and suffering, sovereignty of God and salvation, I want to close here in a second with the sovereignty of God in sustaining us. But before we get there, I think this is where it becomes extremely practical because some of you in here this morning, probably many of you, you have experienced in your life being pursued by wickedness or evil You've tasted things in this life you were never meant to taste. And I don't, I can't tell you why this morning, because I don't know. But as a result of it, some of you, I mean, you still this morning, this morning you can feel the shame or the uncleanness or the anger or the bitterness what felt like evil stalking you. But I can tell you from this passage that you have a sovereign God, one of all power and all authority, and He has been stalking you since before the foundations of time. You know the verse, Psalm 23. Surely, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow, it's a great Hebrew word. And it's only translated follow that one time in all the Old Testament. You know how it's translated every other time? Persecuted. Hunted. Surely, goodness and mercy will hunt me down will overwhelm me all the days of my life. And it is there we can rest our weary souls. 
that God has been stalking us from before he uttered the words, let there be light. And there was light. Some of you here feel like, I'm not even sure God knows me. Oh, he knows you. And he wants you to know he knows you. Now, here's another very difficult thing for us to understand. And you'll see why in a minute. But it is the sovereignty of God in sustaining us. And what Paul does is he gives us three evidences that God is completely for us. I mean, this is how he says it in verse 30. Was, well, so what shall we say to these things? I mean, you're feeling it. I mean, you're reading this. You're like, what can we say about it? And here's what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the three evidences that God's for us. The first thing you'll say, verse 32, is that he does not withhold anything from us. I mean, the one who spared his son for us withholds nothing from us. The second evidence he gives us in verses 34 and 35, or 33 and 34, where he says, he will not allow anything to condemn us. And if those two weren't hard enough to believe, he'll say in verses 35 to 39, he will not allow anything to separate us from his love. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing but nothing can separate you. You know that Paul, the, the Bible never discusses the sovereignty of God in salvation apart from the love of God. It is meant to encourage us The story of a girl. She goes to visit her grandfather. Her grandfather comes to visit her. And grandfather comes in and he sees, you know, the little girl, the little granddaughter playing with all these dolls. And he says, well, what, which one of these is your favorite dolls? And so she goes, she carefully pulls this just ragged doll from this 
little chest that she'd kept it in. And the, I mean, the, the doll doesn't have an eye, you know, and, it, and it's, it's filthy and it's stuffing coming out of it. And the grandfather says to her, why is, why is that your favorite doll? She says, oh, because if I didn't love this doll, nobody, nobody would. If God did not love us, the way we were created to be loved, we would not know love. And yet he created us with this vacuum inside that can only be filled with his love. And he desires us to know his lavishing love that nothing can separate you from. Listen, here's what you need to know. God's love is not gauged by what happens to us in our life. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love. You know what the evidence of God's love is? It's the cross. It is not what happens in our life. It is what happened to his son. That's the evidence. And there is not a thing. There, your, his love for you cannot be affected by what you do, whether good or bad, whether it is perfect obedience or filthy disobedience. His love for you is unchanging. You'll never be loved more. More actively, more intimately, more extravagantly than when you know God's love for you. Do you know that this morning? Have you heard his call to you? If you're hearing it this morning, let me say, believe, believe. Believe. On the other side of this wall, just right through those doors, there's be some elders out there if you want to talk to somebody. Don't, don't leave here today without talking about this if you need to. Bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would do what only you can do. And that is to take the truth, this glorious, mind-bending